The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, June 5th, 2017 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I'm back. And while I was away, a momentous event went down. An event as shocking as it was inevitable. I think you saw it and know what I'm talking about. A Bulgarian from Queens who has a certain finger deficit to go along with a pretty big head, violated norms to say nothing of good taste and values. I am, of course, talking about Mr. Matt. But maybe Donald Trump could also apply to Donald Trump. See how that works? Two levels. See, I don't know if anyone else made that joke or that comparison. I think if I had access to a better Wi-Fi than Mexican beach Wi-Fi, I might know if Colbert or even, say, Barowitz had, as the kids say, gone there. But, you know, since I was on vacation, I was, in a sense, liberated from the constraints of knowing what might already be a trite observation. So, I just go forward. But others do not fear veering towards the obvious. To wit, Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, has just today signed a bill naming that state's official dairy product. It is now out. Wisconsin has an official dairy product. Are you ready for this? This might shock you. It's cheese. Yeah, Texas named the state extractive substance. It is oil, specifically petroleum. And you'll never guess what Idaho's favorite tuber is. I have to say this about Scott Walker. Even knowing everything I know now, I'm glad that guy's not president. I do. I I stand by that. Even knowing what I know now, that guy's jeepers creepers. On the show today, Mike recounts the best jokes he made on vacation. (laughs) That is in the spiel. You want to stay around for that. Don't worry. I'll talk a little bit about climate change policy, but they'll also be the best jokes I made on vacation. But first, a researcher used the Google machine, a few basic formulas, and an unquenchable thirst for answers to figure out what we as a society are lying about. Sexual preferences, racism, and also penis size. Here's Seth Stevens' Davidowitz. A good researcher is not necessarily the one with the best methods, though you got to have good methods. A good researcher is one who asks the best questions. Seth Stevens Davidowitz is a really good researcher. He's an expert in data, and he began using this tool you may have heard of to crack the mysteries of human desire. The tool is internet searches. The world is whispering confessions to Google, and Stevens Davidowitz is listening. Uh, The new book is called Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and what the internet can tell us about who we really are. Thanks for coming in, Seth. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. So what you find out isn't only by looking at internet searches, and it's not only people revealing secrets about themselves, but a lot of it is and some of the most compelling stuff that it is. So where do you start? Was there a aha moment? I mean, I know you're a a science-y guy and you're a data guy and an internet guy, but was there one study that got your attention and said, my God, this can change everything? It was while I was a PhD student in economics, I first discovered Google Trends, which is the tool that allows researchers to analyze Google searches. And I think the first aha moment was just how strong these patterns were. 
which wasn't obvious beforehand. So if you look at where God is searched or Bible is searched, it's the Bible Belt. Yes. Which like, okay, it makes sense, but it could have been that religious people didn't need to search. And then, so then it was like, or yeah. like atheists are searching proof against God. Yeah. So it's like- but or if, it, or if you, you believe that God is with you at all times, why search for it? Yeah, or there there's like some searches with the word God or God of War, a video game. Which, yeah. But like that's kind of canceled out in the noise. And it was like almost a perfect predictor of religious attitudes in the United States. And it was just happening over and over again where these patterns were just so much like more like right than I yes. would have ever expected. So that was, so that was number one. But, but, but at the time when it was confirming what we thought, that couldn't have been an aha moment. That's more of a, oh well, yeah, moment. Well, that was, moment. yeah, that was yeah. an aha moment in that, oh, this data is really powerful. Mm -hmm. But like, then the second thing is, okay, what do we not know? Yes. Like, okay, we know where people are religious. We know, you know, I, I, I you, Lakers is searched more in Los Angeles. We know where Lakers have a lot of fans. Like we didn't need to know, we didn't need any uh, fancy Google data for that. So then I, I kind of had this idea that people confess their secrets to Google. The next aha moment was when I looked for racist searches that people were making on Google and both the frequency with which people were making these searches. They're mostly jokes, mocking or humiliating black people, both the frequency people were making these searches and then where they were being searched, uh, which was very different from the map I would have guessed or that surveys told us. So where was uh where where are jokes about the N word search that So I would have thought it would be uh like South, right? Yeah, so you the Bible belt. Uh, yeah, well or you just think like civil war, right? North mm -hmm. versus South. North mm -hmm. doesn't isn't racist, South is racist. And that's, I might not think that, but yes, we okay, have well, a more, we have maybe, a more I'm, nuanced. Maybe, maybe I'm more naive than, yes. uh, than other people, but... Well, no, you're right, of course. Jim Crow laws and segregation and yeah. Yeah. Well, gotcha. Okay. I think there probably was a lot of na naivete on my part because like when I showed this research to African-American people, they're just like, they were less surprised than yeah. I was, both by the frequency and like the locations. But it was definitely for me, uh, you know, a Jewish kid from New Jersey... Uh, more surprising. So like some of the areas were not just Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama. It was uh, Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio and industrial Michigan and upstate New York uh, and rural Illinois. And uh, the real map dividing map was not north versus south. It was east versus west. Mm -hmm. So it's much higher east of the Mississippi River than west of the Mississippi River kind of racism. Did it correlate to areas with a few, not the Louisiana, Mississippi part, but most of the areas you're naming have a lower black population? No. So, no? Well, like, it's it's kind of interesting. When, when the black population gets very, very low, like yes. Utah or something, then these searches, like, disappear. And when the black population is high... These searches disappear, both because black people are making some some of the searches and they tend not to make these searches. And then also, I think people who live in an area, if you're if you're racist, you're not going to live in like a place that's 50 percent black or 60 percent black. You're probably going to get get the heck out of there. Right. Yeah. But you kind of get these places that are like 15 to 20 percent black that are kind of where race relations are really not good, I think. And then your map mapped onto, and you were pointing this out, I think before the election, mapped on pretty well to where Trump was performing well and where he wound up winning. Well, it first mapped really clearly where Obama underperformed okay. in his previous elections. And th that was kind of where, where this all started. So if you can remember that time period, and it's a long time ago, people were as naive as I, like the country was naive, right? It was, yeah. we were a post-racial society, uh, racism was over, Obama was elected, and then the surveys were all telling us, yeah, nobody cared that he was black, like that wasn't a factor in people's election. And then you saw that these racist searches like mapped really strongly with places where Obama underperformed, right. did worse than previous Democratic Although candidates. Although it was also true, you don't need Google for this, that the um, primaries where Hillary Clinton beat 
Obama were, you know, large swaths of Appalachia, white places, places where Obama underperformed. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so it, it also was in the, in, the, in the primary as well. But again, it, they would have just said it was the coal policy yeah. or, you know, gun policy. T- tangible or, differences yeah, between but, the candidates. Yeah. yeah. But, the, but, but I think. And you what, know what it might have been? It might have more been the coal policy, but there's enough just explicit racism to hurt them. And that's why yeah, we call well, it underperforming. But I mean, you can actually like correlate other things like economic indicators or manu- yeah, how much manufacturing there is or how much coal there is and those don't predict things the things that predict them is racist surges it may be that people think it was the coal policy yeah so they say i don't like him because of the coal policy but we know why they, they really didn't like him and then yes then the trump thing came and then nate Cohen at the new york times and nate silver at 538 were both like this measure of racism the google searches was the strongest predictor they could find of trump support in the republican primary stronger than economics or trade exposure or conservatism or anything else demographics but what we're finding out and maybe these more in-depth surveys of actual turnout aren't really that accurate i mean you always have to take them with a grain of salt but what we're finding out is that there wasn't actually an uptick in white voting it was a depression in black voting so how if he won in wisconsin and pennsylvania or performed really well in the western parts of those states and you saw an uptick in racist searches wouldn't that show up in more white people voting and and from what I understand, it's the underperformance of black people coming to the polls that hurt them the most. Well, it's kind of a weird, this data is so rich, you could actually see these really subtle patterns. Yeah. So one thing that happens is that racist Democrats, they might sit out an election, you know, rather than vote for a black guy or rather than like not allow Trump to get into office. And then racist Republicans make like, they'll go to the polls. So it kind of evens out. Have you found anything in your numbers about why Aside from the fact that, you know, uh, a black person's more likely to vote for the first black candidate, but why there was a underperformance in turnout among black people? Just that he wasn't, that Obama, That's it. That's yeah, that thing, yeah. Obama wasn't. But I think that was another one where you saw it in the Google searches. If you ask people, and this is not unique to African-Americans, any American, you ask them, are you going to vote? They all just say, yeah, 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 of course, I'm sure. going to vote, right? Like, yeah. that's kind of a classic reason you can't trust surveys, which I talk about in the book over and over again, but you saw in the Google search data very, very clearly, uh, you don't know the race of an individual, but you know that there are some places in the country that are 90%, 95% black. And you saw in all those cities, a huge drop off in searches for where to vote and how to vote and polling places, uh, which are really predictive of who actually votes. So it was very clear in the Google search data that this drop in black turnout, there was going to be a big drop in black turnout. It wasn't clear in the voting data. Now, is it harder to put your finger on misogyny as a motivator, implicit or explicit than race. It seems like, well, there was less in the book about it. And I started thinking maybe people won't Google anti-woman joke as frequently as they would Google, you know, black person. Yes. So so one of the issues with misogyny is that misogynistic words are frequently porn searches. Right. Which maybe sex it's i don't know is that sexist is that not sexist i don't know well like, apparently people think it's sexy whether yeah, it's sexist yeah, or so not. it's a little bit uh it's a little bit harder it's not like as on target with these jokes are just like right so like you know right. when what people are, are the words that are clearly uh misogynistic like the n-word we have no equivalent of the yeah, n-word it's a, not bitches because as you point out in the book 20 year olds love saying yeah bitches. and then you yeah. have like song lyrics and stuff so i thought when i first did the racism research there'll be all rap lyrics yeah but that's the version that ends in a yeah and sometimes you're like i guess this data is saved by that little uh difference in the in the in the God culture bless kanye but, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i do talk about sexism the implicit bias you can see 
in parents in their Google searches that parents make different searches about sons and daughters. Yep. Uh, when they make searches about sons, they're more likely to use words like genius or gifted. Uh, so is my son gifted much about twice as frequently than is my daughter gifted? And when they search about daughters, they're more likely to use words like overweight or ugly. Uh, is my daughter overweight? Is my daughter ugly? Why are they asking Google if their daughter's ugly? So the Trump success correlating to racist search, that is probably the thing that you're best known for and you got the most attention for. The second thing is all your research about what is the true percentage of uh, the American population that's gay. And then how do you define that? But you have some very interesting ways that looking at big data sheds a light. Well, so yeah. So if you ask men, are you gay? In surveys or on Facebook, uh, about two and a half percent say yes. And then there are these enormous differences in different parts of the country uh, where there are far more men who say they're gay in California or New York than in Mississippi or Tennessee. So so part of that is that some gay men move uh, mm-hmm. from who are born in Mississippi, move yeah. to California. Yeah. So the obvious way to test this is the porn searches. How many, what what percent of porn searches uh, by men are gay? And uh, I put the number about 5%. And it's pretty, it's a little bit higher in California because there legitimately are more gay men there because of mobility, but it's not nearly, the differences are much smaller than the differences in the in the openly gay population. One of the more interesting and things- And there's no state that's really far below Yeah, 5%. there's no state that's like, there's no state that, that's much, much below that. And then like, I don't think any state is below 4%. And then if you, the number one question that women have about their husbands is my husband is, is my husband gay? And these questions are much higher in Mississippi and Tennessee and all these states. So it's kind of like, it's kind of interesting that a woman, you can imagine there might be some clues that a woman would get when married to a gay man that would make her ask that question. Are they much higher from the same computer that did the gay? We don't know that, but uh, I'm sure that I'm sure there are, although some of this research suggests that I kind of feel like women are a little bit too obsessed with this question. Yeah. So like the number one question is, is my husband gay more than is my husband cheating? And like eight times more than is my husband depressed or is my husband an alcoholic? And I think like my research suggests there are definitely men in the closet and married to women, but there are a lot more men who are alcoholics or depressed or cheating. Men are worried about their penis size. (laughs) Women are less worried about a man's penis size. Yeah. Not totally unworried about it. Not totally unworried. And uh, (laughs) yeah, so I like... uh, so men make more searches how to make their penis bigger than how to uh, tune a uh, guitar or change a tire or make an omelet. Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> they make more searches about their penis, questions about penis than any other body part. Uh, this one I found really fascinating. Other people are other people didn't respond to this one as much, but it's the top concern men have about the aging process is that their penis is getting smaller. Like not- I, I'm with you. Yeah, That's I'm weird. Like, yeah, it's I've like, never no, heard but like all the that. things that happen yeah. as you get older, right? Like, yeah. you, is, is my memory getting worse? Yeah. You know, is my blood cholesterol Well, maybe that's rising? the answer. Their memory got worse and they forgot that their penis wasn't as big as they imagined. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that, it may be a side effect. Of that. Yeah. <laughs> Do but, gay men worry about penis size more than straight men? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't look at that. Got to run those but, numbers. Yeah, but, but, then, yeah. but then for 170 searches, uh, men make about their penis, women make one search about a partner's penis. And wow. then when a woman does make a search about a partner's penis, she's about as likely to complain that it's too big as wow. too small. We oh. got to match up these women complaining about too big with these men who are worried with too small. Yeah, they're, that, I wonder you could if do that some good. Yeah. If you can de-anonymize uh, them, you'd be doing the But I think they're work. all, yeah, so that, I'm, I'm trying to do that more. Like, that's when things get really interesting. If you can get, like, that data, Google wouldn't have it public, but some people are starting to, like, get people to participate in yeah. studies where they give the data. So you could see a married couple. And that would just be fascinating to compare what men and women search. I was, I'm wondering if a bunch of these truths, these revealed truths, if they skew 
towards the forbidden. Like maybe people will be Googling for jokes about the N-word because those books like aren't in every store like they were when I was a kid, right? Maybe the searches for gay porn in Mississippi are because you're at home and you're searching and, you know, you don't want to go out to a gay porn store and possibly be seen. Yeah, I think it's or, – or but then you could also say that some people are so deeply in the closet that they try to wa- avoid watching gay porn. I think it's 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 yes. hard to go from Google searches to an exact number. But you can kind of tell stories. So you can't go. I don't think you can say like just from the Google searches, this is how many people are racist in the United States. But you can say these areas are making it a lot more and it's predicting all these outcomes. Clearly, that's telling us that, you know, that a lot of people are racist and that it's a big factor in American life. So because uh, but but in general, most of the revelations are we're much worse than we pretend to be or than maybe even we think we are. What we're revealing is worse. And I'm wondering if there is a quality about an internet search that, you know, skews towards the forbidden. I I, I think that's true. I think all the data sources that we previously had skew towards the positive Mm -hmm. or skew towards uh, making people look Self-aggrandizement. Yeah. And I think the Google searches is closer to accurate, but a little bit in the direction of, you know, you Google it because uh, you don't want to talk to other people about it. I was talking to a professor at Columbia and he's kind of like, if someone's watching gay porn, but they tell a survey that they're straight and they're married to a woman and they're on straight to their friends. Yeah. Then like my assumption is they're gay. Yeah. But he's like, no, they're just, that's just another side of like, if they don't define themselves that way, then you, they're not really. Right. Yes, of course. Like, gay. So it's like, we're more multifaceted. Right. The way you're defining it, you're not even defining it, but what your observations would lead one to believe that the uh, instances of homosexuality or being gay are higher, it doesn't account for the idea of gayness being on a continuum at all. Like you either are, and if you search for gay porn, then you're gay. But of course, there are a lot of people who would say, no, uh, maybe it's a small kink. Maybe you're, you know, whatever, 18% gay. Yeah. yeah and then- and, and there are a lot of interest. So I talk about how many people uh, make searches regretting children. Like talk about a depressing, interesting finding. Yeah. And it's, but I think a, you could imagine that a lot of people having kids, the best decision they've ever made in their life. One night they slept two hours. Yes. Their kid wakes them up. The kid missed the bus. They have to drive them to school. They're like overworked and they just like go to Google. I regret having children. And like they're in the data set. So like, so, so you want to be really cautious Sometimes a search is just you at your worst moment. It's it's still kind of interesting that people have these thoughts sometimes, but it doesn't, there isn't really one version of you. Uh, there are just moods that you go through. Everybody lies. Big data, new data, and what the internet can tell us about who we really are. Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Thanks so much, Seth. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right. And now the spiel. So what happened while I was away? Oh, yeah, that. The U.S. pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords because those accords would not allow the U.S. to build coal processing plants, even though the president's own economic advisor acknowledges that the U.S. really doesn't need to build any more coal processing plants. Also, Trump said that the Paris Agreement would allow China to build as many coal processing plants as it wants, even though China recently shut down over 100 coal coal processing plants. 
And as an additional fact to consider whether we should get in or out of a treaty based on what it doesn't let us do, even though what we really want to do is the opposite thing, let's just layer on this fact. Everything he said about what the treaty allows, that was untrue. The treaty doesn't say anything about if we can build any more coal processing plants. We don't want to. We could if we wanted to. He said we're getting out because it says we can't, even though we can, but we won't. But just because Trump's justifications for withdrawing from the climate accords were poorly reasoned and often fallacious, it doesn't mean that he isn't firmly in the mainstream of Republican thought. Of course, just because he's in the mainstream of Republican thought doesn't mean that the mainstream of Republican thought isn't full of poorly reasoned and fallacious arguments. Look, I think 14 or 15 of the people running on the GOP ticket would have formally or de facto undone Paris. And by the way, one of the ones who wouldn't was George Pataki. Your other Republicans, your Marcos, your Bens, your Carleys, they would have been slightly more sophisticated in their reasons or their lies justifying the non-compliance. Great, their grandkids would still be sweating in February. Trump's arguments to withdraw are bad and the arguments to stay are good because they're all like, you know, sciencey and factual. But guess what? Sciencey and factual does not cut it with the only voters Trump cares about. So here is my messaging strategy. Now, Trump's always saying America first. And indeed, America is first. It is tied for first in at least two key areas. One is maternity leave. We are tied with Papua New Guinea and Lesotho as the two nations in the world, plus us that don't have maternity leave. And now we are tied for first in not signing the Paris Accords. The USA is first. We actually were beaten. Two other countries got there before us. They didn't sign. They are Syria and Nicaragua. That is it. USA, Syria, and Nicaragua. Now, I've heard some people use the argument to maybe shame the U.S. that, oh, we've turned our back on our partners. We've turned our back on Europe. The French are pissed. I don't think that an upset Emmanuel Macron will leave your typical Trump supporter with a sense of shame. Do you? I think the key to messaging to maybe get at, undercut the confidence of, you know, the 30 whatever percent of people, maybe 40, who support Trump, especially on this issue, is just to keep pointing out who we're throwing down within this. It is the USA-Nicaragua-Syria alliance. The so-called Club of Three, you know, the U.S., along with Syria and Nicaragua, along with its partners, Syria and Nicaragua, along with its great climate allies, the ones that it sees eye to eye with, Syria and Nicaragua, they are all in a group of people who share the same stance on science. Remember, hi, hi, I'm a pollster. Yeah, you're wearing a MAGA hat. You voted for Trump. You oppose NAFTA. Okay, great. Here's my question. Now that the U.S. has agreed with the stances that have already been pioneered My Syria and Nicaragua, how does that make you feel? When did you realize that the Nicaraguans were leading the way, sir? And they should ask the president, have you placed a congratulatory or conciliatory phone call to Syria and Nicaragua? Thank them for going first so America could follow, could be the first to follow Syria and Nicaragua. By the way, Syria and Nicaragua didn't sign for different reasons. Syria wanted to change its climate which is full of bombs, to one less full of bombs. That was their priority. Nicaragua didn't think the Paris Accords went far enough. But still, Syria, Nicaragua, and the U.S. How's that, Trump fan? So, Trump's stance and his stated reasons for withdrawing from the Paris Accords, they certainly are a joke. But you know what else is a joke? Some of the things that I said on my vacation. You know, time was a relative would return from a trip and show slides, be an actual physical slideshow. But now we have Instagram, we have a hashtag that says no filter, which basically tells you that uh, 
Whoever uses it is a self-identifying, self-important brain ass. That's fine. But you know what? I want to do an audio version of the visual slideshow, but it's very specific. These aren't all the places I visited or the people I saw. Just the best jokes that I made on my vacation. All right, you are in for a treat. All right, so the first one is before the vacation even started. So my girlfriend's showing me different outfits that she may wear, beach wear, evening wear, and then she presents a loose flowing garment, which she identifies as a cover-up. And I say, honey, that cover-up is the crime. Huh? I got all RuPaul on her? Huh? She got red and twirl on that? That cover-up is the... It was actually a lovely, lovely frock. But I was thinking about the word cover-up to describe a specific type of clothing. Isn't cover-up just a synonym for clothing? Isn't that what clothing does? I bet in many languages the word for clothing roughly translates as cover-up. Which is the crap? So, you guys are in luck because it was a week-long trip and I had many opportunities to make jokes. Okay, so I get to the... All right, I'm, I'm being told now that this is not testing well with the focus group. They do not want all of my best jokes that I made on my Mexican vacation. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you the best joke I made on my Mexican vacation. So we're headed to the ruins of Tulum and we hire a guide. This guy was great because the thing about ruins is... They're kind of, what's the word for it? They're kind of ruined, right? They're, they're like, it's a brick, and they can kind of tell you it was anything. They, they had actually some very lovely, uh, still less ruined ruins. That's what you want. But this guy had a flip chart thing with a lot of illustrations. So we'd see before us in real life a bunch of stones, which could be the foundation of a house, and then he'd show you what the Mayan house looked like. So that was cool. And the temples, and then he'd show you a picture, and you'd see the human sacrifices, which they really did. And that's really cool. The thing with ruins, I mean, now it's a selling point. Now you want to go to see the ruins. They're like distressed jeans or shabby chic furniture. But the illustrations really bring them to life. So he would tell you about all the canoes and the 30 people in the Mayan canoes. And then he showed you a picture and you saw them in the canoes. And it was really bringing it to life. So then he's telling us about the economy. And, you know, the Mayan economy was a salt-based economy. So he shows this picture, and the picture is of a Mayan guy uh, wearing a loincloth, and he's shoveling salt. And next to the Mayan guy in a village scene, there's this huge pile of salt. And next to the huge pile of salt, there's a smaller pile of salt, and then two more big piles of salt. So I ask my guide, hey, do you know what that small pile of salt is? And he's like, no, I, I don't understand. What do you mean, what's that small pile of salt for? And I say, oh, that was for the Mayans who were on a low-sodium diet a low-sodium diet. And he thinks for a second, and he bursts out laughing, a low-sodium diet. And we high-five and fist bump. Actually, I go for the high-five. He goes for the fist bump. So we do that slappy fish thing. Uh, maybe he thinks it's how Americans are high-fiving these days. Anyway, we make a connection. Definitely the highlight of my vacation. And it tells me that, you know, when you're visiting a land, when you're visiting a place of uh, antiquity, they tell you not to take anything away, not to disturb it, you know, from an archaeological perspective. Leave the treasures of antiquity unmolested. But I got to say, when you're standing there amidst the glorious past as a human, you can't help but have your soul be stir and you're inspired to in some way leave your marks. So I think I found a way to leave my mark through terrible, terrible humor. And I can imagine that in the future, my guide will put that joke into his shtick 
for all the visitors. And everyone will be able to enjoy a little thing that I left, just as the Mayans left a great civilization. I left this little joke. And while I cannot match the Mayan capacity for mathematics or their wondrous mastery of astronomy, I can contribute a joke and thereby do my part to unite all the peoples of the world. I mean, we're Americans and and we're not that bad, I wanted to tell everyone. Sure, We'll doom your grandchildren to choke on smog and flee from seas that have risen as if to spite us. But we'll also contribute what the Mexicans might call a broma di papa, a dad joke, and all will be forgiven. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube has been known to make jokes on vacation, but they require a working knowledge of French Canadian to really land. Mary Wilson also does vacation jokes, but they are fairly specific to the King's Dominion Amusement Park. Steve Lichtai composes limericks about every vacation destination he's ever been to. Of course, he does have a summer cottage in Limerick, Ireland, so a little less impressive when you think of that. Go to Facebook, facebook.com slash slate gist, and leave your best joke that a tour guide ever laughed at. Has that, maybe you're not like me and you don't, don't try to make the tour guides laugh. But if you do, you can tell us about it. Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. Guest hosts of the Gist stay at the Casa de Jaguar Tulum. All the amenities of home if your home is inside a small jungle. Oom peru da peru du peru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>